In August of 1920, amid the trauma of the Irish War of Independence, something happened in County Tipperary that gave a lot of people hope in a dark time. It's a series of events known as the Templemore Miracles. Joining me now to talk about it is historian and author Sean Hogan. Sean, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. You've written about Templemore and the surrounding areas in your book, The Black and Tans in North Tipperary, Policing, Revolution and War, 1913 to 1922. Tell us first of all, though, about the state of affairs in Templemore in early August of 1920. How badly affected had Templemore been by the ongoing conflict at that stage? Well, Miles, uh, Templemore, in fact, hadn't been particularly involved at all in the conflict up to that stage. While uh, Salahed Beg was generally taking the starting the War of Independence in Tipperary, Templemore was a, a relatively quiet part. Uh, there was a battalion headquarters of the Northampton Regiment of the British Army. It was an RAC district headquarters. And uh, while the IRA existed in every parish, uh, the 2nd Battalion of the Mid-Tipperary Brigade of the IRA was neither well-armed nor active in early August of 1920. But then everything changed on the 16th of August. Tell us about District Inspector Wilson and what happened to him. Indeed, William Harding Wilson was a District Inspector from uh, Kings County, or Offaly, who had been, unusually I suppose for RIC officers at the time, had been promoted through the ranks to the rank of District Inspector and had been posted to Templemore in 1912. He lived just on the outskirts of the town. He was a 56-year-old married man with uh, four adult children. And on Monday, 16th of August, uh, Mid-Tipperary IRA uh, shot him dead as he was walking home for his lunch from the RIC barracks in Templemore. He, he was, in fact, the second RIC district inspector to be shot by the Mid-Tipperary IRA. The background, really, to this was during the summer of 1920, there was a, a step up in the IRA campaign going beyond what had been, I suppose, widely criticised as assassination of individual policemen to attacks on RIC barracks in various locations, not just at Bray, but right across the country, I suppose, or the Munster area in, in particular. These were generally events that happened on Saturday nights, and uh, they were the first real act of service for hundreds of IRA volunteers were mobilised for these attacks, cutting trees to block roads and that kind of thing. And one of those volunteers, a man called Michael Small from Bursalee, had been shot dead uh, early on a Sunday morning in July 1920 uh, when he was heading home to milk his cows after an aborted IRA attack in RIC barracks in Chevrolet. Uh, now, an inquest was held in the military barracks in Templemore in what seems quite extraordinary. It was attended by the Brigade OC of the IRA in the area who concluded that District Inspector Wilson had given the orders which had led to the shooting of Small. So he was obviously targeted then for assassination. Brigade OC was Jimmy Lee. He ordered his uh, assassination. So it was at that point that uh, Wilson was shot by another member of the Mid-Tipperary Brigade uh, on the 16th of August. And what were the consequences for the shooting of Wilson? Well, there was a fairly typical pattern of IRA outrage followed by Crown Force reprisal was well established, I think, in Tipperary in the first half of 1920. In the aftermath of previous deadly attacks, we'd already had the targeting of property of Sinn Féin figures, particularly county councillors in the town of Thurlis. We'd had the burning of cooperative creameries after an attack in Lacamoire near the Newport area. And uh, most dramatically, I suppose, really, two IRA men had been shot dead by midnight raiders who were generally believed, of course, to be Crown Forces, certainly believed by people in the area to be Crown Forces, although that was never proved. 
So on that particular Monday night after Wilson was shot, the military and the RAC were out of the barracks uh, patrolling around the town, but uh, some of them broke into a garage belonging to a man named George Minan, who ironically was, was a friend, in fact, of District Inspector Wilson, and they threatened him and, and took some 20 cans of petrol from him, with which they proceeded to burn the market house, which was also the offices of the Urban District Council located in the centre of the town, in the centre of the big wide street that, that is the characteristic, I think, of Temple Moor. And they left the town and went out to some of the surrounding areas, some of the surrounding villages, and burned three cooperative creameries at Lockmore, Castellani and Killay. Now, the burning of the buildings was, was bad enough, but uh, two soldiers also lost their lives in the fire in the market house using petrol one died in the fire. In fact, the second one, he fell out from a second-storey window and was injured as well as burned. He was removed to the barracks, but he died the following day. Now, he, he was a Lieutenant Colonel Sidney Herbert Beatty of the Northamptonshire Regiment. Quite a well-known figure. He, well, his father was well-known. He was from Fitzwilliam Square here in Dublin, and his father, Sir Andrew Beatty, was a unionist member of Dublin Corporation at the time. So the pattern of IRA outrage and Crown Force reprisal that really came to characterise the conflict was well established in Tipperary and uh, Temple Moor is another example of this. Okay, so that's the background to this story and that's the the state of play in Temple Moor by the middle of August 1920. But in the middle of all this terror, Sean, a series of miracles occur. Tell us about James Walsh and what were the supposed miracles that he witnessed? Well, um, in, in 1920, uh, James Walsh, he was a 16-year-old who was working as a farm labourer on Miss Maher's holding in a place called Corraheen in the hills overlooking Templemore town. Jimmy Walsh was one of 11 children of what had been known, I suppose, really as a, a labouring family from a little village called Bulladuff or the Rag, uh, a few miles south of Templemore. And I think members of the Walsh family, in fact, were known to have the cure for shingles and, and things uh, like that. It would have been, I suppose, common at the time people would go to people for cures. And the Walsh family were one of those. But uh, it was immediately after what had happened in, in Templemore on 16th of August that the word went about that Jimmy Walsh w- was seeing apparitions of the Blessed Virgin and that he had some statues and they were bleeding. Uh, our blood was coming from the statues. Now, as you know, the Blessed Virgin had appeared you know, in other places, in other times, she had appeared in Lourdes in 1858 and in Knock in 1879 and in Fatima in 1917. So uh, she had form really in terms of appearing to people. But uh, Walsh uh, was the vessel, he was. He became known as the saint, in fact, in and around Templemore. Although I suspect that was probably a bit tongue-in-cheek really, that that label was applied to him. Now, there was a huge reaction from the public to these um, supposed miracles and thousands came to Templemore to see the bleeding statues. Um, this is an account by Hugh Martin. Hugh Martin was a journalist for the Manchester Guardian who was reporting on events in Ireland and he describes the scene at uh, the business, uh, Dwan's, where the statues were on display. At nine o'clock, one of the ground floor windows of Mr Dwan's premises went up a few inches. It was possible by kneeling to get a glimpse of the three statues, about a foot high, on a flower-bedecked table. A score of men and women dropped on their knees. Heads were uncovered and rosaries and crucifixes came out. Some of the pilgrims had come great distances, doing the journey in stages, and must have suffered torture in the process. They would be admitted, one by one, led or dragged, or carried, 
into the presence of the 16-year-old who had brought all this fame to the town. I judged that Walsh really believed himself a special vessel of grace. The crowd contained a large proportion of young men who were not just there as mere onlookers, but were craving to believe. The words there of Guardian journalist Hugh Martin. Sean, how did the town cope then with the arrival of all these visitors from around the county, indeed around the country, and who took charge of the situation? Well, indeed, uh, word spread like wildfire, and there was a number of reported cures then that Walsh had touched people and prayed over them and that had miraculous cures. So thousands, as you say, of people turned up. In fact, the County Inspector of the RIC estimated that there was 15,000 visitors on one day in early September to the town. It helped that the town was on, of course, main uh, railway line, and so people could access Templemore uh, fairly easily. So what happened then was, in order to cope with that, the police had withdrawn to barracks, and the military had withdrawn to barracks, and the IRA, in fact, took over uh, organising and, and running things in the town. They organised traffic, they organised common they organised, you know, stewarding of people as they were coming to the town because it was a huge boom, I suppose, really, for Templemore Town. It was more popular than any of the seaside towns in the month of August that particular year, I think. So it became a very major event, really, in Templemore and Ireland, really. So businesses obviously were helped by Walsh's visions, but was anybody else making money from the, from the miracles? Well, indeed, the businesses were, and many Jarvies arrived to carry people out. Walsh, you see, had, had been living out in a place outside the town, so people needed to go out to see where he was. He was staying out there, and uh, the Jarvies were needed. And, uh, in fact, the IRA took charge, but they, as it were, taxed both the Jarvies and the people providing accommodation and the people in the restaurants and everyone else as well. So they, they certainly benefited, and they collected several thousand pounds, which went into the brigade funds for purchase of weapons. But I think those a lot of money made and, and money began to throw freely around the town of Templemore in a way that it had probably never done before or probably never done since, I think. Right, let's go back to Hugh Martin of the Manchester Guardian because there were reports of people being cured of their ailments, as you've mentioned, by young Walsh. And Martin was at Walsh's house in Curraheen and wrote about what he saw and how desperate people were to cure their loved ones. The tragedy of the affair lay not so much in human credulity as in the agony of which I was a witness. Scores of poor wretches were hauled through the miry boreens to their inevitable disappointment. The picture of one young countrywoman staggering upwards with her tortured child will be long in leaving me. More commentary there from Hugh Martin of the Manchester Guardian. Um, Sean, what was the church's reaction to these miracles? Well, obviously, I think the official church was very reluctant about the whole situation. They would have, uh, before miracles could be claimed or, or whatever, there would be very elaborate processes that uh, things would have to go through. And while obviously there was some local enthusiasm, I think, among some of the younger clergy, I think it probably emphasised the difference between what I might call the folk and the formal religion in, in Tipperary at the time. Although Archbishop Mannix, from, who was from Australia, was visiting Ireland at the time, he actually came to Templemore, but he was the most senior cleric. The local bishops uh, weren't impressed, really, with uh, what was going on in Templemore at all, really. Now, this all didn't last very long. I think it was about four to six weeks. What brought this period, this incident, to an end? 
the officers of the Mid Tipperary IRA were convinced that the whole thing was a fraud of some kind and they were concerned while they had brought in volunteers from all over the area to manage things. They were witnessing a breakdown in the discipline of the IRA, really. IRA volunteers for the first time maybe had uh, some spare cash available that they were collecting from the pilgrims and they joined the pilgrims I think in, in drinking uh, obviously pilgrimage was, was thirsty work so they got very involved in that and the Brigade OC records in his Bureau of Military History statements that some events which brought no credit on the IRA to time well he doesn't actually list what the events are regrettably. So um, the IRA basically returned to action under Leahy didn't they? They did indeed. Leahy arranged an attack and uh, an RIC patrol place called Killiscahan, which was on the road, the pilgrimage route out from Templemore out to Corraheen, where Walsh was living. They ambushed a, a police patrol of four policemen, shot two of them dead. Constables Flood and Noonan uh, were shot dead. And, and that pretty well brought things back to reality in around Templemore and dented the whole pilgrimage fever. It tailed off after that. Presumably there were reprisals for that attack. Interestingly enough, not after that immediate attack, but subsequently there was there was another ambush in October when a lorry of, of soldiers was going from Templemore to Tipperary Town were ambushed in a place called Thomastown between Cashel and Tipperary Town. This was the first ambush carried out, large-scale ambush was carried out by the IRA's new active service unit or flying columns. And three young soldiers from Templemore, including, interestingly enough, a young private crummy who was from Nina, had been in the Nina workhouse and had joined up. The army was killed. And I'm afraid the Blessed Virgin wasn't able to save Templemore or Tipperary Town from the wrath of the young soldiers' comrades. And they burned and looted oh, a significant number of properties in, in both towns. You know, that was just at the start of November 1920, which would be remembered as one of the blackest months. Terence McSweeney had just died in hunger strike and Kevin Barry was hanged in Mountjoy and sort of uh, really went into the real violence, as it were, of the War of Independence. So what had happened up to that looked like minor violence up to that point. Let's hear once again the words of Hugh Martin portraying the devastation that was wreaked on Templemore that October, thus ending the pilgrimages to the town. My next visit to Templemore was paid five weeks later, by which time the miracle boom had exhausted itself. About a third of the population had fled. From end to end, the little place was shattered, as though by a series of explosions. For a quarter of a mile, the glass in every window not heavily shuttered was broken. Altogether, more than a hundred buildings had been treated in this way. Sean, what do we know about subsequently what happened to James Walsh? Walsh was was spirited off to um, a religious order, I think, as a way of sort of ending the affair. He was taken to a religious order in Palace Kenry in in, in Limerick and uh, may have received some education there. And in 1923, he left Ireland, in fact, and went to Australia. He obviously continued his education there and and became a teacher, in fact, uh, out there. But uh, unfortunately for him, he was teaching in a Catholic school, but uh, some visitor from Ireland identified him as, inverted commas, the saint from back in Ireland, and he ended up being fired out of the school because of fears that he was overly religious or overly zealous in his religion, and he ended his career as a hospital porter, I think, dying in Sydney in, in 1977. Well, it's a fascinating story and it shows that there was a lot more going on in Ireland at that time than just the fighting in the War of Independence. Sean Hogan, thank you very much for joining us this evening to talk about the Templemore Miracles. Thank you.